With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's Ryan Marine and Dan Lloyd. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a post-Motul Petit Le Mans Double Stint Podcast from Sports Car 365 here in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. We've got Dan Lloyd joining me this week. He was my co-pilot for Petit Le Mans weekend, even though he was doing it from the UK, which is where he is right now. Dan, you ready to dive into the week that was? Absolutely. I've caught up on my sleep and uh, yeah, <laughs> looking forward to discussing all things Petit and more. It's uh, been another busy weekend. It has, and we've got a busy one to look forward to as well with the total 24 hours of spa still slated to go at the moment. Right now, everything is good to go. We're recording this on Monday afternoon, so who knows what can change between now and the time you're listening, but uh, we can only give you a snapshot of the way the world looks for us here at the moment, and so we will spend some time previewing that great event, uh, some news to touch on as well from this past week, but I think safe to say let's start with a look at uh, Motul Petit Le Mans, which for the first nine hours or so, Dan, I was kind of wondering what are we going to talk about on the show here this week. It was pretty procedural. There were some exciting moments along the way, but boy, oh boy, that final hour, and, and we'll start in the DPI class, that packed in a lot of drama in a short amount of time. Oh, didn't it just? It was, uh, I, I could... I got the sense that we were going to have something like that coming into the end of the race. I mean, it, the, the the way things were sort of bubbling throughout the, the preceding hours and as it got into darkness, you, you just you could see the contenders emerging and you just thought, oh, there's, there's going to be some kind of spark here. Um, and, and indeed there was. It was a thrilling finish. I mean, Wayne Taylor racing. Um, probably won't have had as fortunate a, a victory in, in in all of their careers, any of those drivers as that. I mean, Rengo van der Zandem thought that Christmas must have come a couple of months early when he saw the two uh, the the two cars spinning in front of him, and and yeah, the, it was it was a thrilling race in general, and and just sort of indicative of how these uh, IMSA endurance races so often boil down to crucial moments, and uh, at the same time, it, it proved that just just being there and not making too many mistakes and, and staying on the lead lap can can uh, bring the highest rewards. And Wayne Taylor Racing found that, and subsequently they're in a, a, a great position in the championship. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, maybe let's go through the drama of what led them to have that opportunity to snag the unlikely victory. It looked like a podium finish. It looked like a good points day for uh, Ranger van der Zanda and his full-season co-driver, Ryan Briscoe, of course, Scott Dixon joining the team as he did at uh, the Rolex 24 at Daytona and put in some good work too. But I don't know if they had what it took to get the win on their own pace if what hadn't happened in front of them and right in front of Ranger van de Zanda, actually, as he recounted to us, hadn't played out. Uh, really dramatic moments. No, absolutely. And and in, in the end, van de Zanda was about 10 or 12 seconds behind the two leaders um, when they collapse, when they clash, when Pippa Durrani and uh, Ricky Taylor had that unfortunate incident, um, that that gap was sort of, I, I suppose, brought down by the fact that we'd had some cautions during the race. But in general, in pace, the Wayne Taylor Cadillac wasn't the quickest car by any stretch. Um, it, it had some issues earlier in the race with Van der Zander at the wheel. He was spotted slowing down suddenly at a couple of sections, having some problems with the battery and and, and the voltage in the car. And, and and Ryan Briscoe had a real near miss, which could, you know all could have ended in tears going into that um, turn ten a braking zone. He flew across the gravel, miraculously missed a bunch of cars and and uh, missed the scenery as well, and was able to continue. Um, but but really with those considered i mean it that sort of made it a car that, that i wouldn't have fancied for the win the two ahead of it definitely were in much better contention they had trouble free races um but then it as you said came down to that contact i don't know what you thought of it ryan it was it was sort of hard to see from the various angles we had but uh, the, the way that they chanted two of the better cars and and just sort of not the way you'd want to expect that that, that kind of race to conclude. Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask me that, Dan, because I'll confess I, I haven't seen <laughs> the replay more than a handful of times. As you know, I was covering the GT classes in the race, and all of this yeah, was happening. Well, yeah, exactly. As I was trying to get uh, that race report prepped, and I, I heard kind of that something dramatic was happening, and I looked up and, and saw it happen, but uh, that wasn't really in my purview, so I went right back to work and wasn't paying a ton of attention to it. I have seen it a few times subsequently. And I guess the the ultimate takeaway for me was 
that I think race control got it right. There, there was contact. It was worth reviewing. But ultimately, I think a no call was the way to go. If I was going to place the blame, I think Ricky Taylor probably should shoulder a majority of it. But it takes two to tango. And those two were not cutting each other much slack in the buildup to that particular ill-fated move. And then, of course, throughout that maneuver as well that uh, sent people to running off track, stranded in the gravel, unable to rejoin. And it sent Ricky Taylor into a spin that ultimately cost him a chance at victory as Vanderzanda came through. Going back to the race control no-call decision, I think it's the right one for a few reasons. One, maybe it's the fact it was in, in the nighttime and there wasn't a great look at it. At least I didn't think so. To be able to say definitively that was too bold a maneuver or what have you, I'm not sure the data was there to, to make any kind of penalty call. But more importantly... You really don't want to discourage the drivers from making a move like that late in a race trying to win. You don't want the driver to be thinking in a similar circumstance down the road, I'd like to make this pass, I'd like to win this race, but I don't want a penalty. Like that That's not what you want the drivers thinking about if you want to have a compelling show. So I think they made the right choice. But as I said, again, if you were going to apportion blame, I think the burden really falls on the car that's making the overtake to do it cleanly. And I'm not sure Ricky Taylor was all the way alongside. And, and certainly people Durrani agrees with me based on uh, what he was saying post-race. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Durrani was certainly fired up at the end of it. I, I, I Sort of adding on to what you said, Ryan, I kind of get get the impression that the, the, the place where it happened on the track made it harder to judge who was at fault if there was anyone at sure. fault. Turn six is a it, it's a less obvious sort of braking zone compared to some of the other places on the track. Um, I I thought that if, if it happened perhaps down a, into turn ten a or, or or into turn seven even it would have been easier as as a kind of harder braking zone, easier to see who who might have been at fault. And and sort of related to that, I think that perhaps um, Ricky could have waited and and maybe got a better chance later in the lap. He still had a few minutes, a few laps left to get past Durrani. Um, and at the same time, he was really showing good pace and, and was was shaping up to make a move, I think. But then again, when you're coming up against someone as aggressive and clinical in battle as Durrani, you know, every half chance is an opportunity. So you can fully see why Taylor went for the gap. Um, in the end, it provided us all with with thrilling racing. And certainly it's going to be an incident that will be shown on replay videos for, for years to come. I'm sure one of the more exciting uh, moments we've seen in IMSA competition. It was, and it actually harkens back to a similar result at Petit uh, a couple of years back. I think this would have been 2018, and Wayne Taylor racing, sweep, sweeping through at the end. If I remember correctly, it was maybe a, a fuel uh, situation for Action Express, and all of a sudden, Ranger van der Zanda, Jordan Taylor, and, and I think uh, Ryan Hunter-Ray that year came through for an improbable win at the end of that season, and there's something about that team and, and some late race fireworks, uh, especially at this race, it seems like, here in the last couple of years, that has led to quite a bit of drama, and uh, hey, it was good for, for the folks at home watching. It was good as well for the fans on site watching, and I suppose now is a, as good a time as any to, to bring this up. I did have a chance to walk around a little bit. My access as a media member was somewhat limited, and, and they really didn't want us mixing with the fans because we were going to have some limited interaction with the paddock and the health of the paddock obviously is of a great concern to the sanctioning body but that said from my little walk around and also from some of the helicopter shots on the tv broadcast there were a lot of fans there and regardless of whether or not this was a the, the smartest decision from a health standpoint uh, i'm just going to step aside from that for a moment and say it was nice to see fans on site. It was nice that it felt like an event that mattered. It's been a long time since we've had anything like that, and um, hopefully everyone did it in as safe a manner as possible. But, I mean, you look at those overhead shots, and there was a lot of camping going on. And, and there is a facility that you can spread out some in, and it never did seem like people were, were really crowded together, at least from what I could see, and I hope that's the case. I hope everyone took uh, the safety of everything seriously, but it was nice to see fans back on site. It does do so much for the atmosphere. Uh, but stepping away from that, staying briefly here in DPI, I uh, did want to touch on what happened with the Mazdas, and, and we've talked some 
at length on previous shows over the last couple of years that the Mazda program has clearly taken strides. They are much more competitive than they were, but they cannot seem to get a break in some of these long-distance races, Dan, and that was the case again over the weekend. Yeah, it's it shouldn't be the case, but I almost I almost expect it mm-hmm. to, to happen in 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 these longer distance races for the Mazda cars, and and whether that's them running with Yost or with Multimatic, there's just it, it, there's just something playing against them, I, and and in many cases, and certainly in this race, it was a mix of mechanical issues and bad luck. The 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 55 car that was looking strong early on um, had some trouble with its brakes, lost I think it ended up being about six six laps down, if if I recall correctly. Um, due to a, a, a brake change and, and other other problems there on the front of the car, and and that set them off out of contention. Left the Multimatic team with the 77, which again was running really well. Um, it had just finished the driver change. Tristan Nunes, who I thought um, had a brilliant race, um, handing over to Oliver Jarvis, who was um, pretty pretty unfortunately just not taken out, but but plunked into by the the ultimate winning gtd ferrari and um, the subsequent contact with the wall was what really did it for that car and 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 that also lost a large number of laps and it it's it's just one of those things that i i can't really explain with the mazda cars and that they're gonna have to um you know take stock of what happened and and make some repairs get back out there for laguna seca and perhaps more importantly for sebring where they'll want to be having a much better performance over the uh, endurance race with uh, vital points on offer. Let's move away from DPI, Dan, into LMP2. Four cars on the entry list over the weekend. I think there was some discussion coming in uh, that this class could cause some problems in this race. There were a handful of drivers that in the build-up to the raid much in the way of pace, and I know that that was a point of discussion in the paddock that, that was a bit of a concern, especially at this racetrack, Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta, very, very difficult in certain places to negotiate traffic. And, uh, you know, again, I think it was actually a very, very positive race for the LMP2 class because it seemed like they were rarely a discussion point, and we had a nice battle at the front for much of the race. Unfortunately, the PR1 Matheson car that Patrick Kelly has driven the full year, they they had an issue and had to retire that car, and then the, the battle for the lead kind of disappeared at that point. But, uh, I'm curious about your impressions of the LMP2 show over 10 hours at Petit Le Mans. Totally, I thought it was a it was a really intriguing battle actually at the head of the field, and we had a, a great chase between uh, uh, PR1 Matheson Motorsports and Tower Motorsport by Starworks. You could see see that 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 gap grew out quite a lot in the first half of the race, but over the second half, it was gradually coming down and and as the different drivers swapped in and out the the pros and the ams it was in, just fascinating to watch it um watch it come down the way it was and 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 tower motorsport by starworks ended up getting ahead and then prevailing totally when the pr1 car dropped out of contention with a suspension problem i believe it was um but no ryan i, I was i was really uh, pl- not pleasantly surprised because the, these are fantastic cars and, and with some great drivers in them. But certainly um, the fact that you said there might have been some concerns in the paddock, I, th- those concerns weren't there by the end of the race. Um, the LMP2 cars generally stayed out of it. I know there were a couple of tangles, particularly um, when Dane Cameron uh, lost the lead in, uh, around the halfway point. He tangled with a, with an LMP2 car. But no, generally they, they performed very well and, and uh, while the lead gap of... Uh, five laps is sort of indicative of other cars having problems it, it, it was a great showing all around from the four cars that showed up and and uh, yeah I, I hope to see a decent uh, decent set of cars on the grid for sebring if we can get them over um cool to see into europol competition making its IMSA debut as well getting a podium the polish team experienced in lmp2 never driven with the uh, orica 07 gibson before so it was cool to see those guys out and they're coming back for sebring um which is going to be uh, nice and exciting to see bolsters the grid a bit Yep, exactly so. To the GT classes, GT Le Mans, huge, huge weekend for Porsche, especially coming off of the, the last two events, I guess, in the WeatherTech Championship. You go back to mid-Ohio, and they weren't even on site. That They had to pull the plug on that um, due to some issues with the coronavirus outbreak inside of the team following Le Mans this year. And then they finally get back on track again at Charlotte, uh, the the week prior to Petit and the cars, both of them lasted less than 20 minutes. Uh, both of them out of the race after after just 20 minutes or so. 
So a, a huge low there, and then to come from that and to finally get a breakthrough win that they've been waiting for all season long, especially with the knowledge that this program only has two more races left, uh, Laguna Seca and Sebring, that was a big one. It was emotional for the team, and, and Nick Tandy certainly emotional uh, talking to me about it after the race. But they needed a little help because it did look like it might be BMW Team RLL's day. Absolutely, and and I thought the 24 BMW was was nailed on for a victory for, for quite a long time in that race, despite it being such a close GTLM battle as it usually is. I just couldn't see much past the, the pace of the 24 car, but no, Porsche prevailed in the end, and, and it, it was... I think that they had to go into this one aggressively knowing that they they'd had such poor result in the last race and they'd missed mid ohio that i think there was a lot of frustration going around um i i think the drivers were really really uh keen to get this this good result and to and to show that porsche um, isn't going to go out with a whimper in, in its final season in this category i think they want to prove that the 911 rsr package is a strong proposal for IMSA competition and that they can end on a high and as you said, Ryan Tandy, after the race, sort of letting it all out emotions-wise, it was a huge result for them. Uh, and and I think I, I think it was justified, the fact that they kept the car there, um, kept it on the lead lap. I know the 912 had an incident late on, which prevented it from uh, classification. But no, it, it was it was sort of sort of like the old Porsche that we got used to seeing in previous years, the, the way the operation ran without um, issues on the 911 camp. So no, that was cool to see. Shame for BMW, I think, not to get that victory. Um, obviously, they performed very well, Corvette, though, um, just sneaky, great point score for them again. Um, and and in the championship stakes, nothing wrong with what they did. Their two crews still top of the pile, courtesy of how well they've been consistency-wise throughout the season. And that was the case again over the weekend. Antonio Garcia and Jordan Taylor, the points leaders coming in, just building that points lead, coming out as well. They finished second, joined over the weekend by Nikki Katzberg. The 24 BMW, as mentioned, uh, Jesse Crone, John Edwards, and Augusto Farfus, did a, uh, did recover to finish third despite some some issues late. The the problem was they were forced off track at one point. Really, I think it was in the final hour. It picked up some grass on the radiator, which caused the uh, engine temperatures to come up alarmingly high, and they had to pit to take care of that issue, and that dropped them out of the lead and out of podium contention until the issue for Lawrence Vanthor in the final few minutes. Uh, that crash actually brought out the final yellow flag of the race that was still out when the checkered flag came out. Uh, they were able to finish in fifth, but uh, I'm really interested in the car that finished in fourth, and I did hear coming into the weekend that Ollie Gavin had had a, a cycling accident. It was dealing with some rib pain, and he, he was planning on trying to gut it out and, and get as many laps in as he could, but as it turned out, he did just one stint. He, he ran uh, right over the minimum drive time, which was 45 minutes for GTOM over the weekend. He did like 46 minutes, which meant that Tommy Milner and Marcel Fessler had to do basically all of the driving. Milner, in particular, drove for over five hours of the 10-hour race, far and away the most of any single driver in the event. And to come home fourth, given those circumstances, I thought that was an amazing performance from Tommy and Marcel. Oh, absolutely. And when you think about it, that, that could that's that's getting close to a full season of sprint racing. Yeah. Um, when when you add it all together and, and you know, superhuman stuff from these guys. And I, I, I guess I guess we sort of in some cases, it's easy to 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 forget that these guys are, are top, top athletes, just the way that they do this sort of thing day in, day out. But these endurance races really do highlight the sheer physicality that they have to have. Um, as well as the the mental fortitude to be able to carry out something like that. So you know, great work from uh, Tommy and Marcel there. And I'm sure um, Ollie was appreciative of their efforts as well. And uh, hopefully he'll be able to get on the get on the trail for recovery and, uh, uh, and be able to exact the uh, similar performances we'd seen from him earlier in the season in the uh, latter races. And finally, GT Daytona, as always, it was a great battle for the GT3 cars. And coming to the fore... Towards the end of the race was the Scuderia Corsa WeatherTech Racing Ferrari 488 GT3 Cooper McWestfall rounding out the the lineup. Uh, they were able to to pick up the win, and I thought most impressive of all was this the the opening to the race where Cooper McNeil drove a lot in the early portions of this race, Dan, and that car never left the top five. He was mixing it up with some of the best. In fact. 
uh, I saw on Twitter that the team put out something. He had passed Patrick Long, and he wanted to make sure that the team knew about it. He said, let the record show I just passed Patrick Long. That that was his radio transmission that the team uh, t- tweeted out. And, hey, anytime you're doing that, you're doing something right. And then for, for Balzan, who has not been racing full-time since his medical issues a couple of years ago forced him to step out of the car, this was a a big, big moment for them to, to break through and get this win. Yeah, and, and, and for, for Balzan as well, he, he, he had to recover from the, the clash with the Mazda that put the 77 out of contention. And, and he actually only dropped two positions in that incident. So obviously the damage wasn't uh, too bad, but I'm sure they were they, they were struggling with, with something there because it was a pretty big hit. But no, Balzan managed to um, hand it over to Westphal, who did a fantastic job in the closing stint. But just touching on what you said about Cooper, I mean, he was he, he was so stoked after the race, it, and it truly was a standout performance. And he he had uh, Louis Kalmash, he's the head of uh, Ferrari Motorsport North America. Uh, this is according to Cooper, who told you after the race mm-hmm. that um, Kalmash said he was the best of the three drivers there. And so um, he was absolutely delighted by the end of it, and 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 it was indicative in the data as well that how good his performance was. As you said, Ryan, sticking it in the top five, and I don't think the car ever left that position there um but also i think that there was some of the main storylines in gtd were affecting the other cars that could have been contenders certainly the ones that were in um, championship contention um the weather tech racing guys scuderia cause that hadn't won for two years and they not really in the championship fight but then you look at um some of the teams that missed out particularly the 86 mayor shank racing acura nsx gt3 evo that had a a, a pretty pretty terrible end to the race really with some problems and and then uh, that all enabled Aaron Tealitz to take the lead he seemed pretty chuffed with that when you spoke to him Ryan um just just if you could explain sort of uh, how Tealitz managed to rise to the to the top in second position get in that championship position well it helped that they came home second in the race he was teamed up with Jack Hawksworth and Michael De Casada. that car never really featured as far as a, a contender for the race win they, they came to the front towards the end and I think second place, Aaron even admitted, was probably about what they had. He he readily admitted that, that they didn't have anything for the 63 Ferrari. But he was certainly aided by problems for some of the other championship contenders in terms of his ability to take the points lead. And you referenced the 86 Acura from Meyershank Racing. Three races in a row now that they have been hit by someone. If you go back to the uh, the mid-Ohio round where Mario Farnbacher had his run-in with Paul Holton, and then in the previous race at the Roval in Charlotte, uh, there was the tangle, I think it was between Hawksworth and Farnbacher, and now this time it was the other full-season driver, Matt McMurray, who was hit, and I actually can't remember, I think that it was the one that was kind of in the middle of the scrum. That car got bounced around, hit by a couple of different cars, had some suspension damage, which they did repair, but they really couldn't recover and uh, ended up in 10th, and that was costly. You also saw the Turner BMW, which had emerged as a championship contender after winning in Charlotte. I think their hopes probably are dashed at this point after Robbie Foley came into the pits reporting some kind of issue with the brake pedal. They never could quite figure out what caused it, but uh, did change the tires, and evidently it got better after that. But they lost a lot of ground as a consequence and ended up finishing in ninth. And so... All this to say, it's opened up the opportunity for Aaron Tielitz to jump to the top. And he, he was not supposed to be a full-season driver this year, if I remember mm. this correct correctly. I think that was Parker Chase's seat. Tielitz was in the sister Lexus at the Rolex 24 and was going to be part of the endurance lineup. And then when Parker Chase pulled out, Aaron got the call-up and ended up uh, in a full-season uh, role. And he might just win this championship. Yeah, that, it's 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 funny how it all works out in the end, and and I think Tealitz was sort of um, almost almost a bit bewildered by the fact that he he's now in the championship lead after everything that's happened to his program this year. But um, no, it, it's it's been consistency from the Lexus guys, and certainly a position that they've got coming up is a good one for Laguna Seca and uh, Sebring. Tealitz said afterwards that. He's not sure if those tracks, particularly Laguna, are any good for the Lexus. But um, certainly when, you're, when you've got a championship lead to defend, your tail's going to be up because you've got the opportunity to claim uh, one of the more coveted crowns in GT racing. So, um, yeah, all, all to play for still in GTD. And for sure, Mayor Shank Racing will be wanting to uh, right the wrongs of Road Atlanta and get back on top. So by no means finished in that category. Yeah, it is very, very close in the GTD points leaving 
Michelin Raceway Road Atlanta. Like we said, it's two points the lead for Aaron Tewitz, but that's two points over his teammate and co-driver now, Jack Hawksworth. As I said earlier, they haven't always been in the same car, so they're on a different points line at this point. Uh, four points back then in third, Patrick Long and Ryan Hardwick. Just a few more points behind them, a total of seven out of the lead. You still have Farnbacher and McMurray, who were the leaders coming in. I think that's your group at this point. You've got to go quite a ways back now to Townsend Bell, who is fifth. They were in position to get a good finish and got uh, involved in that incident with Lawrence Vanthor at the end of the race, which cost them dearly. I, I don't think you can factor them in as a championship contender at this point. They're down 22, and remember, a win pays 35, so just two races to go. It would be a, a hard points deficit to overcome with so many cars in between Townsend and Aaron, but still, you're looking at at least three cars that have a very viable shot that have been running towards the front. I think the dark horse has to be the right motorsports Porsche that is there with Patrick Long and Ryan Hardwick. They've not won a race this year, but have shown great consistency and a great ability to keep the nose clean and get a finish even when they might not have the outright pace and who knows maybe Laguna will be a good racetrack for them maybe Sebring will as well and and Nick might be able to steal something that that they really haven't factored into too much to this point in the season you never know so should be fun it is weird though to be talking about points championships that haven't been settled leaving Petit Le Mans Dan because for so long now we've become used to this being the finale of the season and I know teams and drivers both are still trying to to kind of wrap their head around the fact that no no we still have two more to go and one of them by the way is the 12 hours of Sebring uh it's just 2020 things isn't it (laughs) I, I I you've you you've got you've got everything changing this year in terms of you know where we're racing when we're racing what's happening you know who's who's winning the titles and when um i i kind of like the novelty of it i'm sure i'm sure we'll get back to get back to some state of normality in the schedules at some point soon but um yeah as you said it's tough going from a big endurance race into another big endurance race usually you know after after the petite, uh, you, you, the teams would be able to just sort of take stock and, and recover through the season uh, after the season and and make any repairs and things like that. But there's not a long turnaround until Sebring, um, and we've got another sprint race in between. So you know, real pressure for some of the guys who might have had a few knocks and uh, a few things to to weld and sort out uh, after the uh, a grueling petite race. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's nonstop, and uh, but we've got more racing coming up, and that's the main thing. Really looking forward to what we've got coming up. Yeah, and also you got to factor in for these poor teams that are really working hard. There's a lot of work that goes into making sure the cars are ready before and after the endurance races. So the final three races of the year come out to something like 24 hours of racing. And by the way, mm. you've got a trip across the country from uh, Atlanta to California for Laguna and then back again for Sebring that you have to factor in there too. And it's going to be quite a grind for everybody involved but we're just happy we've got racing at this point because there was a time when it didn't necessarily look like that would be feasible and as we've come to learn and we transition to the news here now Dan we we continue to see you can't take anything for granted at this point um so getting away from Motul Petit Le Mans to the news of the week the top story for sure is the cancellation of the 2021 Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour really sad to see this this is such a wonderful event that has grown in its its magnitude and significance so much in the last decade or so and become one of the premier sports car races on the planet. And to go without it for a year really is a gut punch, although you kind of saw the writing on the wall here over the last few weeks. You did, yeah. Australia has been um, one of the strictest countries in terms of border control regulations. And uh, at the same time, cases are rising in Europe and obviously a lot of teams uh, contest the Intercontinental GT Challenge from Europe based on their sort of manufacturer uh, programs and involvement. So it, it was this. This was always one of the biggest question marks, particularly with Bathurst position in February at the start of the year, when you can expect a flu season and and therefore um, coronavirus infections to be at their height. It, 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 it's it's still that still doesn't make it any easier of a pill to swallow because if you talk to any driver who's done Bathurst, they'll say it's their favourite race. And if you talk to any driver who hasn't done Bathurst, they'll say it's the one they want to do. 
and and it's always one of the one of the absolute highlights despite being right at the start of the year so you know, it's a real shame that we're not going to get to see it i think it poses questions about how the igtc can uh, structure its calendar next year um i'm obviously i'm sure we'll, we'll hear some more this week from uh, stefan ratel when, when we've got the total 24 hours of spa and an opportunity to speak with him but um it's it's going to sort of raise raise possibilities and and considerations of how to manage the championship when you can't hold the first race of the year and and you have these huge gaps already between races on the schedule so um all of that to uh, to figure out but for now we just sort of um I guess come to terms with the fact that we won't be be at this uh, this huge race early next year, and and sort of a sign that um, these racing series can't get can't let their guard down and get complacent when um, so many things are still changing. And and as we've read um, today or, or in the last couple of days, that um, other series in Europe are starting to um, change their event structures. The Nürburgring Langstrecken series, which runs on the Nordschleife, they cancelled their event that was supposed to be taking place this weekend um, because of rising case numbers in Germany and the difficulty of um, people involved in the NLS series being able to get tested for the virus as a result of, of, of the spike in infections. And added to that, GT Masters has replaced its round at Zandvoort with the Lausitz ring. That's only taking place in two weeks. These are all similar sort of storylines that we heard back in March and, and it's it's sort of coming back up again as motorsport is um, obviously reactive to the global situation and, and these sorts of changes, uh, I, I think, are sort of the start of perhaps other, other waves of uh, announcements with regards to calendar changes. Uh, personally, I can't see racing uh, continuing in the way that it should have done this year, that, that it would have done in previous years going into 2021. I think we're going to see something similar to 2020, personally. Yeah, which is not what anyone wants to hear, but I think you're probably right, and, and I'm still concerned for a few more of the events still to come this year. I, I hope that there's enough already in motion for the total 24 hours of Spa to go on this weekend, but like I talked about at the open of the show, we don't know at this point. And I would say, too, the ELMS finale, which I think is scheduled for Portimao in a couple of weeks, I think that's another one you got to look at, and I think there has been some discussion about well i don't know if this one's going to happen or not so you know with all of this just bear with us wait and see i guess and, and we'll do our best to keep you folks up to date on the latest up at sports car 365 we might have to bring back that updated calendar changes uh feature we had on the website there for a few months huh dan yeah that's true i mean it's it's ne- ne- never assume that a race is going to be on the date people say it is now because it, it's it it is it, so prone to change and, and with national and international regulations um yeah it's 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 just one of those things that the as i said we have to be reactive to um i think the big question marks now you mentioned some of the races coming up in the shorter term future but i'm looking at kyle army in mid-december mm-hmm. and, and thinking like well that's that's tough. I mean, I would have I put a circle around that you know, at the start of this year, thinking that that's going to be a difficult one to organise. But as as reality beckons and cases go up again, you you just it's so hard to imagine that that can go ahead. But even even looking at the um, the big mid November finale weekend where you've got Bahrain, Sebring, and World Challenge at Paul Ricard, you know, I'm I'm looking at the World Challenge one in particular, and 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 thinking that. It, it, that's that's not even a guarantee. So yeah, we're just going to be on our toes, and 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 as you said, Ryan, we'll we'll be um, at the forefront of making sure people are updated and knowing um, where to be and when and what to be looking out for because it's so hard to keep track of uh, everything at the moment, not least uh, motorsport calendars. As I've been saying all year regarding these rescheduled dates and really any date on a calendar at this point, I'll believe it when I'm there and I see cars yep. on track, and even then. You can't take it for granted because I was at St. Pete this year, Dan, and there were cars on track when that thing was canceled. Uh, the the GT4 America cars were out there, and all of a sudden there was a red flag, and we were done racing for several months. I laugh because I don't know what else to do. It's uh, It's been that kind of year. So sad news for sure. You can read more about the cancellation of the 2020 Liquamali Bathurst 12-hour up at sportscar365.com. To some happier news here, we did get confirmation of one of the full-season Acura DPI seats for next year. Uh, Meyer Shank Racing had already announced that A.J. Allmendinger would be with the team for the Rolex 24, which put us in a unique situation where A.J. Allmendinger, for a, for a time there, was the only confirmed Acura DPI driver 
for 2021. Well, no longer. He's joined by Olivier Pla, who has some history with MSR and I think will be a very, very good fit in uh, in one of those seats next year. There's a cracking signing, I think, and it generated a really positive reaction. Uh, Pla, uh, d- despite having never driven the Acura ARX05, um, he, he, he knows all about prototype racing in general and he's uh, he's driven oracles before and as, as you said ryan has history with the mayor shank uh, or as it was then michael shank racing operation in 2016 winning petit le mans in the ligier honda uh, he's he's just one of those guys that that has so much experience of the series of sports car racing he's a, a, an ideal person to be able to plug into a new program um i think one of the challenges for mayor shank racing is it's coming in um into an established formula that it hasn't driven in before and obviously it spent a lot of its time recently in the gt3 ranks so they're going to want people who already know how to do it and how to win and plara is obviously one of the uh, perfect people for that so um, yeah great to see him firmed up um it sounds as though we're going to get some more announcements in the coming weeks uh, i know that uh, reigning dpi champion dame cameron is is being considered for one of the seats there um although we understand that an announcement can't be expected to come any earlier than sebring um, but certainly that's still not a very long wait. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll get to hear more on the Acura DPI side for MSR very soon. An interesting story that you had over the last week was on what the ACO is doing given the different uh, difficult economic circumstances to make sure its budgets stay in line. Can you kind of highlight what you learned and, and what the ACO is doing to make sure that everything is good from a budgetary perspective looking ahead to next year? Yes, so uh, the ACO issued issued a statement last week in French um, just basically explaining uh, what what the current situation is there. Um, I I thought it was a good good thing to do because it's good, in my opinion, for these um, organisations to be be open about the challenges they're facing. Um, Pierre Fion was was quoted as saying that there's... the company has lost money this year, and that's I suppose, doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, it, it, it lost spectator access to two of its biggest events, the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the 24-Hour Motos bike race. There have been events at, at, at Le Mans, but it's sort of been restricted to uh, uh, club level, the biggest one being the uh, MotoGP World Championship motorcycle race, which had 5,000 spectators. But even so, it's been a real rough year in terms of organizing events. And when you factor in the fact that the ACO is going through um, constant uh, building uh, in, improvement projects for the Le Mans complex, there's a new pit building supposed to be going up by 2023. Financial times are hitting hitting that place hard. And so what's happening is that uh, there are going to be some budget cuts and uh, what exactly those budget cuts, what areas they will be taken in isn't quite clear, but certainly um, tightening the purse strings a bit with uh, with, with with what kind of spending goes on there, whether that is in terms of um, staff reductions or not, we're not too sure. But the ACO is certainly looking to join the uh, French state's temporary unemployment scheme, which is how businesses around the country. And it, it, it's a way of businesses being or, or it's a way of employees being able to receive money, um, even though their jobs are inaccessible due to the uh, social climate. Uh, and I think it, the, the ACO is looking to join that and, and uh, ensure that it can have a long term future. But I, I think it's good that it's um, addressing these issues now and um, being honest about it, putting it in the open. Um, for sure, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be your, your normal next couple of years. And, and uh, I think it's good that the ACO is just uh, sort of addressing those things and uh, going ahead in the way that it is, albeit with um, with some reductions in in numbers as as it's outlined. Another big story from the past week, Jens Marquardt, who has headed up BMW's uh, motorsports programs uh, for nearly a decade at this point, will be leaving that role for a different position within BMW, and it's not uncommon for these positions to be held for a short amount of time and, and kind of to cycle people through various parts of the company. I think we see this with Porsche, for instance, quite a lot. Jens has been around for a long time, though, and has had a, a hand in guiding BMW's direction when it comes to, to motorsports for a long time and has had a big impact, therefore, on the racing world in general, not just what, what BMW has been involved in. Think about the, the various uh, committees that they've sat in on and had some say in the direction uh, that, that motorsports has headed since he has held that position. So certainly an end of an era. What do you make of this news? 
Uh, I, yeah, it, it, as you said, Brian, it's it's not often that you get to see someone in a position for what is pretty much a decade. And, and Jens Marquardt has sort of become synonymous with BMW Motorsport. And, and the fact that the manufacturer has been involved in so many different programs, he's had a great influence in many areas of the sport. You know, it's not just GT racing where um, he was in charge as they introduced the BMW M8 GTE and also had a big had a customer program with the M6 GT3, um, but BMW also entered electric racing under Mark Watt's purview um, with the Andretti Autosport team, and 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 it's it's been a real real busy time for the manufacturer. But um, as you say, th- things change, and Mark Watt is still with the BMW group, but he's been reassigned to the pilot plant, which is where production prototypes are, are, are based. And I think he's got a team they said of around 700 people there. So. Um, Mark Watt, who's used to being in charge of a large group of people, will continue to do so um, just within a new production-based role. The person coming in to um, replace him on an interim basis is an interesting one. Marcus Flash is the head of BMW's M Group division, the very well-known performance brand that BMW has uh, has been running for several decades now. Um, Flash is, is there as, as interim. It's, it's not a, a full-time hire at the moment, but certainly um, speculation going around that it could lead to a greater um, influence from the M side of the company um, in the motorsport activities. There was a reiteration that the factory motorsport programs on the GT and Formula E sides will continue, but nothing was said about how long they're going to be continuing for. Obviously, BMW's got a new GT3 car coming in 2022, That's being developed in accordance with the M Division's M4 product. So already tight links there. It will be interesting to see how uh, Marcus Flash uh, in in this new motorsport director role um, approaches things, if he'll be there for a longer term period um, and how it changes BMW's overall motorsport strategy. And we know as well that BMW for a long time now has been one of the biggest proponents of bringing hydrogen technology to motorsports. And it seems like Jens has been quoted on on that quite a bit over the years and kind of wonder what this might have as far as uh, an impact on the future of, of that technology in motorsports because you, you lose one of the biggest spokespeople for it, although I suspect that that's probably something that's widely held within BMW, but that is one of the things I thought about when considering his legacy at the helm of, of the, the BMW Motorsports programs. We wish him the best, interested to see what the future holds, and always an interesting time when you get a change at the top, as we have had here recently. Final major news topic of the week. It's an interesting one. Jensen Button, former Formula One world champion. He's been involved in GT3 racing from an ownership perspective in uh, over the last several years. And I think the question has always been, well, when is Jensen going to get behind the wheel of one of his cars? And um, it looks like that time is coming and soon. Yeah, well, it took it took him long enough. I think many people were were, were hoping for him to be there from the start. But yep. no, um, absolutely fantastic to see Jensen Button getting involved with his own team. Um, to, to, to the uh, Jensen team, Rocket RJN uh, Enterprises, still still a fairly new operation. But um, the question was always as soon as that project was launched, the question was, when's the boss going to have a go? And and we finally got that answer. He's going to do it in in the biggest single race of the British GT season. It's the season finale and the three-hour Silverstone 500. It's kind of the blue ribbon event in that uh, in the domestic sports car racing scene. Uh, he's doing it with Chris Buncombe, who's a, a part owner in in the uh, Rocket R- team, Jensen Rocket RJN team. Uh, obviously, the team run in assistance with RJN, that, that famous British sports car outfit. Um, you know, I, I think they, they, they've got enough to put up with a good showing. I, I don't think it's clear what class they're going to be in yet. I would presume it's Pro-Am, um, but that's yet to be decided. Um, but but uh, Jensen Team Rocket RGN have been very good so far in the series. James Baldwin, who was the uh, world's fastest gamer esports competition winner, and Michael O'Brien, who's a McLaren junior, have done very well this year in their debut. I think they're... Either third or fourth in the standings, I can't quite remember, but certainly they've had a great year and, and I'm sure that will translate into this new entry. Um, certainly had a positive reception and Button seems to be absolutely uh, buzzing to get in for what will be his GT3 debut. He's been active in GTs very recently, to be honest. Uh, obviously, the last two years he's been involved in the GT500 ranks of Super GT, winning the title with Honda in 2018. So he's race fresh. He's been driving for his own team in esports as well, in the McLaren on Silverstone. So uh, uh, really, he's got no excuses to be off the pace in the first session on the ground. 
Um, so yeah, that, that's going to be a great one. Just a shame it won't be uh, won't be available for fans to watch trackside. But um, as always, uh, the, the British GT and the other SRO series have some great streaming options available for people to follow. I suspect it will lead to a little extra attention on the series that weekend, and hopefully they put on some good races and can capitalize on the eyeballs that uh, Jensen Button brings with him. Plenty more on those stories and a whole lot more, including IMSA to sanction the MX-5 Cup Series starting next year. That and more up at sportscar365.com. Let's wrap things up here. We do have a question that came in from a listener named Marcellus, who says he's a huge fan of the show, which we're very appreciative of. He says the question is on GT3 equipment in the SRO Series. He says he notices most of the GT3 cars are brand new models, is this because only the 2019-2020 models are allowed, or is the older equipment just no longer competitive? For instance, could a team purchase the older 2015-16 K-Pax Bentleys or the McLarens and run those, or is this against regulations? He says in the Kailami 9 hours last year, he's pretty sure he saw an older 997 GT3 car being run, says also with the cost of new GT3 cars being so high, it would give smaller teams the ability to run older equipment at half the cost of a new unit. What say you, Dan? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, certainly, you mentioned SRO series in particular. Certainly in, in Europe, there is actually a previous generation car that will be racing in the 24 hours of Spa this weekend, which I'm sure uh, Marcellus will be interested to uh, to follow. It's um, So they, they are still allowed in competition, but his, his point of it being a question of those models being allowed or those models being, oh, sorry, those models not being allowed or those models not being as competitive, it, it sort of leans towards the latter, I think. I mean, we we see constantly uh, manufacturers coming up with Evo upgrades to their cars after a few years in a cycle. Um, on the face of it, these cars seem to just be slight upgrades on their original versions, but there are so many new parts and things that just make the car better. It's perhaps hard to see it in performance terms because they're always balanced by the BOP system. And actually, the, the JP Motorsport Mercedes 2016 spec Mercedes, which is going to be racing at Spa this weekend, did did win a race outright in GT Open earlier this year at the Hungara Ring, sort of putting the whole performance thing aside. Um, but no, generally, having that kind of uh, equipment and service is, is just what you need to have if you're going to compete in these high-level SRO competitions. Um, I guess also a factor of it comes down to um, work support. It's better to go in with the up-to-date parts and services. Um, thinking about brands with um, like Bentley or McLaren, which has its um, 720S all built in-house, it, it, it's much better to have the latest up-to-date tech and, and, and people running on that tech available to you um, than having something that, that perhaps isn't, uh, is, isn't in, in mode at the time. Um, it's... I, I guess I guess it would be nice to see older GT3 cars racing a bit more. I think it, it didn't didn't Transam do something, or they were going to do something for this year, having a class for old GT3 cars in America. Ryan, is am I making that up? Or I believe that is correct, and I think there's also yeah. the the new uh, GT festival or, or there's GT celebration series that was started in the U.S. Um, yeah. You look at GT Sports Club in America this year, and they allowed the older generation GT3 cars. But I would say, too, in GT World Challenge America, the Ferraris that ran there this year, I believe without exception, were not the upgraded Evo Ferraris. So mm -hmm. th those were the older spec cars. And talking to the teams, the, some of the, the rationale there is, is just to save the money. They think the BOP is going to be able to keep them reasonably competitive. I think... A lot of times that's not the case, actually, and especially in a series where both are present, the the BOP will favor the newer one, and part of the reason for that is the manufacturers who spent the money on the Evo kits don't really love it when the older generation car is, is going out and going faster than the new thing that you just mm. built, and, and you don't tend to see that last very long. Uh, the balance of performance tends to shift pretty quickly but certainly in in gt4 over the last couple of years i remember the older spec cayman would run and run very well up against the the newer spec cayman and there there have been some other examples of this too over the years so i i don't believe it's against the rules imsa might be an exception there and, and i'm not i might be speaking out of turn i could be wrong but it, it seems to me that this was a discussion that was surrounding the Audi last year, um, especially at Daytona, there was some thought that 
that the older gen Audi was a little slipperier and up on the oval, it would have been better. And some of the teams that were there running Audis were trying to find a way to, to make a switch or something, but they couldn't. But I might be I might be misremembering that. That's been a little while. So anyway, I, ho- I hope that helps to, to answer the question on on why and how some of these things go. But in general, there is an advantage, um, a couple different aspects of the advantage to, to having the newer car, and that's why you see most of the teams going that direction. But uh, should have a little bit of diversity with that in mind, as Dan pointed out, for the total 24 hours of spa this weekend dan the plan is for you to be there so good luck we hope that it all works out uh when you arrive if you arrive what do you expect to see uh i expect to see a, a brilliant field of gt cars okay it's it's a slightly smaller grid we had 72 for the 72nd anniversary edition last year we've got 56 on this occasion but really um if anything the quality has been maintained i mean it's a full gt3 grid this time um no no sort of cut class interlopers or anything or herbie or anything like that it's <laughs> oh, yeah. it's the cream of the crop and and um jam-packed full of igtc full season entries uh, you, you scroll up and down the entry list as i'm doing now just looking at the sheet i've got and and the the factory names just stand out um so all of the manufacturers there have got great entries i think and um, some of them have scaled back a bit i know mercedes amg is only running two factory supported cars but then y- you still look at the quality of the lineup hrt in particular with lucas stoltz maro engel and uh, vince abril it, it doesn't get much better than that and then you've got uh, audi which has allocated the top three drivers in the DTM standings to three of its factory supported cars. It's just fantastic. Um, the race itself, it's going to be strange. No fans there. Um, of all of the, the races that, that uh, have had to decide to go behind closed doors, this is, this is one that I think was um, really holding out until the very last. Uh, I know Stefan Rattel, the boss of SRO, was so, so keen to have fans at Spa. It's, it's one of those huge... Um, experience is not just it's not just a race it's about camping it's about being there with your friends it's you know it's it's an absolutely fantastic all-around experience because you've got the parade in town beforehand and you've got spectators lined in the bank we're going to have none of that this time around but um, for sure the racing hopefully will certainly make up for um, what we lose in terms of spectacle um, in terms of other things going on and um, hopefully we'll be able to hear, hear a bit more about um, potential plans for 2021 and Kyle Army. I know it's a rapidly evolving situation, but um, I'm sure we'll be there to, to ask all the questions that need to be asked about the future. Um, and, and just in, just in terms of, of the championships, it's going to be a, a round of both intercontinental and of uh, GT world challenge Europe endurance cup. And, you know, it, it's, it's an, a unique situation when you're counting points for two championships at the same time, but both are coming into crunch time. It's the penultimate round of both. Uh, and for sure we're going to, it's going to sort of add an extra element of spice to what is undoubtedly one of the big endurance majors. And uh, yeah, no doubt we're going to be in for another classic this weekend. Having experienced it for the first time in person last year, it really, it stings not to be able to be making the trip this year, but I'll be watching for sure and reading the coverage up at sportscar365.com. Dan will be our man on the ground if everything goes according to plan, so make sure you keep it tuned to the website, and we'll have a whole lot more to talk about when we get to next week's edition of the show, but for now... That's it for us here this week. We'd love a rating and a review on iTunes if you have some time to help us out with some feedback and get the show out there and a bit more visible for sports car racing fans to find. If you have questions or comments for future shows, you can leave them in the comments section of this article up at sportscar365.com or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. That's it for us this week. Talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. We'll be right back.